Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Energy Transition, episode number 76. Big oil, big miner. Good morning to the podcasters, to our viewers and supporters. Morning. Morning. Good, Good afternoon. Morning. Good day. Uh, let me please uh, share. Big oil seems to be entering the mining sector. And this is the case of Shell buying some assets to uh, be part Exxon. of Exxon. Uh, Exxon again. It's a veteran Exxon. Big shovel. <laughs> big shovel. All right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. And here's a, a list of top 50 mining. Uh, companies. You see that Australia is uh, ha- has the big two most important ones. Of course. Impressive. Yeah, impressive. Uh, Tammy, please let me start with you. Is a good strategy for our companies entering the mining sector? What's the reasons they are thinking? Well, I think as we've discussed on previous episodes, and it's important to kind of bring that back in again, is that a lot of it has to do with their ESG scores. So if they want to reduce their ESG scores, they're going to have to uh, make these investments. And in some ways, the they're, like Canada, for example, um, the United States, it's almost going to be a requirement that they have made these, these investments to counter... Um, <laughs> their traditional sphere of business, which is bizarre, but um, in order in order to meet these new requirements, um, and in the EU in particular with their with their new climate reporting, um, companies are just going to have to. Now, what's interesting is that the oil majors and, and a lot of different oil companies, oil services companies, they have that skill set. So for example, the there's a, a new lithium extraction technique where they can take the brine directly from the wells. And I spoke to a, an oil well services company and a, and a driller, and they're like, oh, well, this is just like what we do for the oil and gas industry, except now we're, we're drilling for lithium brine. And, and there's these new techniques in order to separate it. So you don't need the big um, evaporation ponds. So they're, they're deploying the, the technology that they, that they already have. So it's good in some ways. You're yeah, mute, I, I... Armando. Sorry again. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Irina, could you please uh, go ahead with this uh, strategy? Why they are moving to this? Uh, uh, because uh, of what Tammy said. Uh, I actually wrote uh, an article for oil price a couple of months ago uh, about this uh, direct lithium extraction, which uh, Tammy referenced. Uh, Schlumberger is uh, investing in it, Occidental Petroleum is investing in it, but it's new, Uh, it's very promising, it sounds very well because it requires uh, a lot less water, I think, and and you don't have these ponds and you don't take up so much space, it's more sparing for the environment. 
but as i said it's early days for this technology uh, and we'll see if it really works as advertised and speaking of big oil investing in technologies that are more in line with the transition narrative and transition requirements uh oil companies are also interested some oil companies in uh, geothermal because it's the same thing they know how to do that they do for oil and gas they can do it for heat it's a little bit different because you have to drill much deeper and that comes with its own set of challenges but that's also an alternative avenue of uh, you know investment and development for uh, for the oil industry it won't uh, win the many uh, you know social recognition or any praise <laughs> from the transition crowd because nothing big oil or small oil does will whatever they do is wrong but the, they really don't have a lot of choice right now and these are things they know how to do yeah yeah but david not only oil companies but services companies like schlumberger Halliburton, sure. and other what's the reason for service cup you mean not to be owner of the assets but to to let's see, uh, provide services for the mining. Yeah, uh, you know, when we're SLB or Schlumberger, formerly Schlumberger, now SLB is concerned, you know, they're really uh, diversifying their uh, technology and service offerings. Uh, they are actively trying to go into uh, these other uh, industries and have been in, in some of them for, for quite a while. Uh, these are companies just like ExxonMobil that are uh, engineering-driven companies that, uh, as, as Tammy and Irina have talked about, have this expertise on staff. And when you think about what's required in, in a mining operation or an extraction, lithium extraction operation, it's not just engineering, but it's also supply chain management, logistics, uh, transportation expertise, uh, understanding markets, and, and these are all disciplines that are already on staff at, at these companies. And so, and, 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 and it's a contrast to the strategies that we've seen over the past 20, 25 years from uh, European companies like BP and Shell, who have, you know, kind of gone out and bought wind projects and invested in wind and solar and traditional renewables kinds of projects to burnish their ESG scores and to create good PR around their company's image. And, and but what we've seen this year is those two companies that I mentioned now rethinking that strategy, right? Because those, those disciplines are not their core competencies as an organization. They've done those things for ESG and PR reasons. They see ESG now falling out of favor. And what are they doing? Well, now they're backing up and saying, you know what, we're going to refocus on how we're going about this. And I would expect to see those companies now start moving in this kind of direction. And, and, and a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, I predicted that five years from now, ExxonMobil's low carbon business unit low carbon solutions business unit may well be its most profitable business unit five years from now. And, and what you see them investing in is, is these kinds of, of carbon reduction activities and not just carbon, but other emissions as well 
like carbon capture, like hydrogen, uh, you know, now talking about potentially going into the lithium extraction business, geothermal, all of these kinds of solutions that are fit for purpose for the expertise they already have on staff, rather than trying to just worry about their PR and their ESG, they're worried about making a profit and doing it with their current people and not having to go out and create all these new disciplines within their organization. So, you know, it makes sense for ExxonMobil, makes sense for SLB, Halliburton, all these engineering driven companies. Yeah, perfect. Uh, only one thing that uh, Khaled found out. Good morning, Khaled. Good morning. Uh, one LinkedIn more. user. Uh oh, I think that may be Stu Turley <laughs> incognito. <laughs> but David, let me, let me ask you in terms of uh, geopolitical and regulatory risks, are they seen the same as uh, the service opportunities? Regulatory uh, areas are very different. You are an expert in this sector. Yeah, sure. I mean, yes, uh, all companies, you know, I mean, and not just in the energy business, but all companies in business today in America, in the Western world, not so much in, in other parts of the world, but in the West and developed nations uh, are facing these pressures. And even though Larry Fink said a month ago, that he's not going to talk about ESG anymore. Now we're starting to see media articles saying, well, you know, they're not talking about it, but they're still doing it, right? And they're just changing the language they use, which, you know, we all, when we had our uh, episode about that said, that's probably what's going to happen. Well, that's exactly what's happening. And so these pressures are, you know, from the financial sector, from the regulatory sector uh, are going to continue. Uh, until we start to see regime change in these Western countries. And, uh, and I just read a piece today about uh, the conservative uh, political party in Argentina suddenly yeah. showing a great deal of additional support in Germany as well, uh, in France as well. And, and so you're starting to see the political tide turn. And if elections start turning, uh, that's the only way these pressures will begin to relent on these companies to to go in these non-core directions. And, uh, you know, it just depends on our country's abilities to, to maintain free and fair elections. And uh, I think that's probably what we will see happen over the next half decade. Okay. We have a question from Brian. Uh, uh, David, please help me because the letter, the phone here. All these... Lithium and geothermal projects, as well as oil, coal, and solar, are happening within a few kilometers of each other in southeast Saskatchewan. Well, yeah, um, and and in Texas too. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Tammy I, will know more about that. I wanted to give a shout out to Brian Zinchuk because he was kind enough to to take um, to take me on a tour of that area and talk to some of the well services companies and the oil oil and gas companies who who are working in this space and it was just phenomenal to see there was it was you know this very small area at, as part of the Williston basin and um, just the 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 amount of activity that that's going on there not just for the traditional development but how they use the carbon capture um, to help do enhanced oil recovery and how they did the geothermal mining or drilling and the the lithium drilling and so on. So, I mean, it's, it, 
it's good and because it's enables um, the oil services companies to diversify to some extent and, and keep people working because even though the governments in some respects are, you know, as Irina pointed out, it doesn't matter what the oil and gas companies do. It's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way to keep, <laughs> to keep operating and whatnot. And what, what concerns me and, and when David's talking about regulatory issues is that, okay, let's say we have, uh, we vote the governments out. Um, but my sense is that, that once these things are in motion and there's certain business decisions being made, then I could see the big companies saying, well, look, we've already made a lot of investment in this sphere, in this space, in this direction. We don't necessarily want to give it up. So there could be and that's pressure. that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? Right, right. right? Because my, my next concern, though, is that, so, okay, we're mining all the, 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 the resource. How are we processing it? Because I was looking through the the lithium extraction, the little bit that's done in Canada, it's all sent to either India or China for processing, and then it gets sent back. So are we going to set up processing facilities here? What are the environmental impacts of that? Or are we just going to, once again, be extraction, doing extraction and shipping it off somewhere else? For processing well they will probably set up local facilities because it's all about uh, you know making the new transition supply chains resilient and resilient so shorter con- yeah. Uh, yeah. shorter yeah and local and not so reliant on china because suddenly everyone's wake uh, woken up to the fact that a lot of things get processed and produced in china so that they, they, they will probably have to to build local processing capacity They'll try to do that, yeah. But you if know, they're China's serious not, about it. Yeah, China's not just going to sit still and watch it all happen without uh, doing what they can do to exercise geopolitical leverage to crash the market to to stop those kinds of investments in the United States and other parts of the West, which China has done on a very regular basis to in order to continue dominating these markets. And so, you know, it's going to depend a lot on political will whether we can actually get those things done in the U.S. and elsewhere. So true. Irina, uh, let me see your, your vision about that. Solar and wind energy prices are falling. And pr- oil prices no, are... They're no, they're not. <laughs> no, not. <laughs> not falling? No. Solar? No, we actually recently talked about wind costs, that they're rising very... Pretty very dramatically. Sharply. Yeah. 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 So, and oil is rising. So, yeah. Is there, is there an Which is going to push the price of wind and solar higher? Too, yeah, exactly. If well, it continues why? long enough. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but is there a reason for that or pure? Well, yeah, there's record oil demand, which apparently came as a surprise to the International Energy <laughs> Agency. Uh, <laughs> someone on someone on Twitter the other day, uh, I, I forgot the name someone knowledgeable about the energy industry uh, noted what uh, uh, what a difference uh, two years make. Uh, in 2021, uh, the IEA said that oil demand peaked in 2019. It's going yeah. to go <laughs> down from here. It has been rising so strongly. It's hit a record. 
but now they've amended that yeah sure this year is going to rise but soon enough uh economic headwinds will you know pressure <laughs> prices yeah. next year yeah next year it's going it's to fall sharply year, that's what you know the bureau people are saying but until then <laughs> if oil is more expensive wind and solar will be more expensive everything will be more expensive as we discussed i think last week or the week before last most recent so do you believe Tammy and Dave that the, the price for wind and solar will continue to, to, to rise or when can can start uh, falling? Well do you mean do you mean like the like the cost of installing it or is that what you both, mean? Both installing and operation. But <clears throat> installing I suppose more important at this time than operation. Operations well, is more price, no? Costs. Well, if you have um, so much competition for the solar panels and the wind turbines and all the materials that are involved in it, and if there's high demand, you might mine more and then that could bring the price down. Okay. But for the most part, it's <laughs> it's more expensive to put it up because everybody's doing it. So yeah. if you've got all these Western countries um, buying into that, then those costs are going to increase. And as Irina pointed out, it's, you know, the wind turbines aren't as um, robust as they've been made out to be. So the bearings go, the blades go, things have to get replaced. And it's costing the companies a whole lot of money to keep fixing. So that means the costs increase. Well, if your input cost is also energy, and that energy comes from oil and, oil and gas, which is increasing in price, well, then, of course, yeah. the cost of that's making right. them increase, right? Yeah, so. Uh, Brian has another question here. On August 6th, Saskatchewan, 617 megawatts of installed wind produced zero power for three hours, 17 minutes. Yeah. Wow. Zero. That's yeah, just three hours. We shouldn't yeah. get bogged down into such details. <laughs> that's just three if, hours. It's nothing. Right. If only we yeah. had some batteries. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't preserve energy for future. There's another... Uh, from, uh, Wind and solar generate power outside of much of the peak demand window. Renewables need avenues to be capable of earning returns consistently for generation outside of that window, which tends to make up 75% of their operational time. Correct. And that's this is why when we see these media reports, and there's there it seems to be 30 a day, uh, th claiming that wind and solar are getting cheaper and are very inexpensive, low-cost energy. What they don't ever seem to want to mention to you is that is the subsidized cost to consumers of wind and solar. Well, where is the subsidy coming from? It's coming from debt. I would say it's coming from taxpayers, but it's really coming from debt issued by your government at, at increasingly high interest rates that your grandchildren are going to have to pay off for you. Okay. Yeah. So this is not cheap and an inexpensive energy. It's very expensive energy that's going to continue to cost our societies dearly over two or three generations. And, and, you know, the claim that, that it's anything other than that is specious and false. And I'm tired of hearing it. Uh, so that's my rant for the day. <laughs> yeah, and last I heard, renewables saved Texas from blackouts, David? Uh, well, there's some truth to that, okay? We've added a lot of solar 
over the past three years here in Texas. And that's not a bad thing. Again, I keep telling everyone I'm not against wind and solar, particularly solar. Um, And so, yes, the additional solar capacity has helped ERCOT manage through this very hot summer. But what solar, all that added solar does not do is solve for the problem of the fact that we have added a net one gigawatt of thermal dispatchable energy in Texas, uh, generation capacity in Texas over the past decade. And that's at a time when our population has risen 25% and our economy has been the fastest growing state economy in the country year after year after year. And we don't have enough dispatchable thermal energy to get us through another winter storm, folks. And if we don't start building it to Texas, We're going to have a grid that's no more stable than California, and it doesn't make any difference at all how much solar we keep adding to this grid. It won't make any difference at all in the midst of a winter storm when solar and wind inevitably fall completely off the grid. Yeah. And I I don't, man, I'm sick of having to say that, but because of the, the false reporting, absolutely false reporting, in most of our media, I keep having to say that, and I know people get tired of hearing it from me, but it's the truth. Yeah, well said. That's my other rant for the day. <laughs> so oh, tired right. of IEA. Not as tired as Arena, I would think. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know anymore. Yeah. I followed them to see what uninformed, uneducated energy organizations slash people. <laughs> <laughs> So you follow them for for the amusement value, for the entertainment value. Yes, exactly. I'd like to, can I add something about the IEA? So one of the uh, interesting aspects of it is that they're often used, um, they're told that they, it has to, the IEA reports have to be used by the, anyone who follows the ISSB. So if you're following the ISSB um, financial disclosures for climate, um, they recommend, highly recommend, using different scenarios and predictions made by the IEA and the IPCC. So if you think of that, and they'll always go back to that report that says uh, supply is going to, or demand's dropping, demand's dropping, even though the updated ones will say, well, demand's increasing, but it will be at some point in the near future. Uh, companies will have to use that, that data set or those predictions for their operations. Which, which are course, inaccurate. Which are inaccurate, so that's that's concerning. Yeah, that, that's very concerning. Very concerning. Very concerning. Uh, LinkedIn users not Back to lithium and the whole energy transition topic. It looks like some experts aren't seeing the abundance of hydrocarbons versus limited lithium and other materials. Does it look to you all that the noise made for energy transition might actually jeopardize energy security? Just taking into consideration the amount of resources. Of course. Well, lithium's everywhere. It's in every every uh, drop of brine on the face of the earth. It's just a matter of it being there in sufficient uh, concentrations to make it uh, feasible to extract at a profit. And uh, we still have to try to do that, don't we? Yeah, but I, I think that's a good point about energy security because yes, yeah, it, it it's good to be diversified. And I think one of the saddest things in the in the West, particularly North America, is trying to get rid of coal. Because if from a strategic perspective, if you take out a natural gas pipeline, 
you're cut off and it's very difficult to get that repaired and back going or whatever. But coal, at least you can stockpile a big mound of it or whatever that you can then use for power generation and keep things going and you could liquefy it or whatever like Germany did during World War II. Um, and of course, oil is more portable. You can move it around. And so to try and get rid of those things that enable you to have that that strategic benefit is concerning because the West is doing that, but China and other is is investing in everything and they're yeah. building up more coal. They're building up more natural gas and they're deploying carbon capture and so on to some extent. So and because everything. that's because China prioritizes energy security over transmission transition considerations. As everyone should. Look, everyone should. Our beat is back. In what part of the world uh, do you expect to see the growth of geothermal? What type mm. of geothermal? Um, man, with the new technologies, we could see it everywhere, really. Uh, geothermal can be uh, recovered uh, from pretty much any formation, conventional formation in which oil and gas wells have been drilled uh, with the new technology. And so we're, we're going to see a lot more geothermal investment. And I, uh, and I yeah, to, to bring the costs down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Brian, they keep thinking about lithium. Yeah. It is, it is storage, like not energy. Yeah. Well, yes, yes. Uh, but Good it's, point. you know, it's, but it's also the key to the EV industry. And as long as we're going to try to subsidize the EV in, industry into profitability, uh, lithium is going to be needed. Now, I, I, 10 years from now, uh, that, that whole concept may be, may have been ditched because when you really look at what's happening in the EV space in the United States, Tesla is the only company making a profit on an EV division. Rivian's about to go bankrupt. All, all these startups are struggling to, to just stay afloat. Ford's going to lose four and a half billion on its EV segment this year. GM's losing its butt on its own segment as well. And, and so none of them are profitable except Tesla. And it took, Tesla, 14 years to become profitable and hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, well, not trillions, but hundreds of billions <laughs> and cheap loans and subsidies from the government before Tesla ever turned a quarterly profit. So, yeah. Trillions only for leveraging. Huh? Different life. Trillion, when called trillion, is for leveraging. <laughs> Even for animals. Uh, Dominicus here, uh, Robert Domenico. <laughs> Well, you know, that's one way to put it, Robert. I, you know, Accurate. I, I just, I, I'm not sure Tammy would ever say that, but I probably would. <laughs> She's too polite. Yeah. The industry. Like it's like the smash and grab flash <laughs> uh, Well, it's, you know, it's focused in California, so that may explain it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the EV industry in, in Canada, I mean, that we've just given over, I don't know how many billions to battery manufacturers. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's <laughs> pyramid scheme. Does that work? <laughs> ah, yeah. Ponzi pyramid, whatever scheme yeah. you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate because taxpayers have to pay. 
And what's the conclusion for today? Could be uh, congratulations for David for the renewal. Well done, Texas. Go, <laughs> <laughs> Texas, go. God bless Texas. Yeah, so nice. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> okay, people, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. <laughs> Short, 30 minutes. Thank you. Very strong. Wow. Sorry. Sorry, I thank got Thank you so to all emotional. the comments. That's okay. <laughs> uh, that was a great week. Great Thank you. Week. Have a good Have a week, everybody. Week, everyone. Bye. 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 Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.